0: Hello and welcome to another Milwaukee Admirals podcast with Charlie Larson. I'm Aaron Sims. Charlie, let's dive right into it. Uh, this guy for years played against the Milwaukee Admirals. A tremendous competitor. And uh, the last couple of years we've seen that tremendous competitor up close as an assistant coach with the Milwaukee Admirals. He's Greg Rollo. Uh, Greg, great to see you. We haven't done that. It, it's funny. We're Yes, people can hear the audio, but we're doing this over the Zoom. And, uh, it's awesome technology. I don't know that I ever want to use it again after in, in, a, in a few months, but right now it's, it's awesome to, to be able to see a few people here.
1: It is great. I haven't seen you guys for a while. I feel like you go from seeing each other every day throughout the season, and now we haven't seen each other for whatever it is. I don't even know, five, six months, whatever it's been now. It feels like a long time since we've even yeah, you'll seen get each a, other.
0: You'll get over it, I think, after this. You'll yeah. get he'll be like, I don't need to see those guys anymore. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. I don't want to see them anymore.
0: <laughs> hey, as as we're taping this, um, the Dallas Stars are going to the Stanley Cup Final. You know everybody there. You played in Austin forever. Uh, Dennis Gurianov, who scored the game-winning goal in the clincher, was a teammate of yours. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I read that he was a healthy scratch in much of the playoffs, or at least the fi- Calder Cup Finals when you were there, right?
1: I think uh, the coaching staff decided to sit him one game just uh, as a as a learning curve, kind of to kind of kick him into gear, and and it, it worked for him in that series. I remember it kind of sparked him a bit, but yeah he uh he's come a long way from from what I know him from to where he is now he he's a young kid that came over here didn't speak much English and he, he's come a long way and and he's definitely earned everything he's gotten and it's so exciting to see him having success. you see so many
0: guys that they they have all the talent in the world right you can see all the skill you see the speed the size the strength or whatever but it needs to be funneled. It needs to be channeled. And it's not, I mean, it, that he's not unique in that case, but it sounds like he is exactly maybe the the, the current poster child for that situation.
1: For sure. And, and I think it's a lot of times things we forget is he was young when he, when I played with him, uh, I can't remember his exact age, but we're talking like 20 years old. So there's a majority of hockey players that are playing college hockey or even finishing up their junior careers at that age. And, expectations sometimes that we put on the young players coming into professional levels it just took them some time to develop and and learn how to be a pro and and play the pro game and it was only a matter of time for gary like because like you said he had all the attributes he just had to kind of put it all together
0: is that when you when you deal with him um and and you acted and it's we've talked about this before you kind of acted like a coach uh in your final season specifically with the Texas Stars. Uh, Carl Taylor was an assistant. Derek Laxstall was the head coach. Do you ha- does he become a project? Is he indicative of of guys maybe you work uh, spend a little more time with as a veteran player?
1: That's funny. You, uh, me, and Travis Moran, we were we were in charge of Gary. We would really take him to the airports. We would pick him up. I know he was there the year before when I was in Germany. I know Travis was there the first year that he got over and helped him set up his internet, got him in his apartment. Uh, So it was every, we would, it was a constant joke. Like when's the text from Gary coming, asking for the ride to the airport. Sure enough, every night, the night before we were flying out, we'd both get the text. You guys picking me up tomorrow? So yeah, (laughs) it's so cool for me to sit here. And and, I mean, he just scored the game winning goal to go to the Stanley cup final. So I couldn't be prouder of him and more excited for him. Yeah.
0: Is that when, when you're going through that, when, when did the coaching bug hit you? Was it a sudden thing?
1: No, I think it's, I I knew I always wanted to stay in the game. Uh, It's been something, I mean, I've been playing hockey since as long as I can remember, since I can walk. So I definitely knew that I wouldn't be able to just stop playing and walk away from it. Uh, It was a decision whether I wanted to kind of pursue a management side or a coaching side. But I think at at this stage, I still really enjoy being on the ice and being able to work with players and and the adrenaline of being on the bench during a game and, and the highs and lows of the game. You, it, it nothing compared to being a player, but it's pretty close being on the bench, being behind there, being, you know, in the thick of things during a game.
2: You know, you, you mentioned that you've been playing hockey since you could walk. Uh, and that didn't happen too far from where we are right now. You grew up in Gurney uh, and not exactly a, uh, uh, what we think of as a hockey hotbed. Chicago certainly uh, maybe is. But uh, talk a little bit about your experience playing youth hockey in Gurney and uh and how you sort of you know when you figured out that hey I'm a, I'm a pretty good player i could actually do this
1: right it's uh for me it was i i obviously i grew up playing all over chicago area and then my midget level when i got to really start to play more competitive and and really focused that hey maybe i want to take this to college or junior uh, I tried all, obviously for all the triple A teams in the Chicago area and did not make the teams there. Is it true? Hold on. So, I'm sorry.
2: Is it true that Vince <laughs> Pedri's dad is the one who cut you one of the times? And is it also true as he claims that he didn't get power play time because of that? No, that's a joke. I'm just <laughs> kidding about
1: that. Uh, well, it, that is all true except the power play point. I can't speak to that, but yeah. And back then it, it is what it is. Um, I was, like I said, I was cut from the AAA A teams, which, you know, it's funny how things work out in life. I ended up landing, playing for the Chicago Flames at the time for a guy named Nick Polis, who kind of became my mentor. And to this day, we are still really close and really friends. And he pushed me and guided me in the right direction. And and it ended up being a blessing in disguise. We won a national championship at the midget double A level my first year. And then we lost in the finals the second year. So it was a really good experience, learned how to win, learned how to be a hockey player. And he pushed me to try, try out in the junior level, and I did, and ended up making that team, and, and it kind of all snowballed from there. How so that was,
0: was oh. it for high school? I mean, did, were you playing out of Chicago, so you would have to drive? I mean, what, what was schooling like?
1: There was a high school hockey in Chicago. I'm not sure what it's like today, but when I was were
0: But you weren't living in Chicago. You were, you were no. going to high school in Gurney.
1: Gurney, for sure. High school hockey was pretty much non-existent right. in the Chicago area when, it, and I'm not sure what it is today, but so I. Well, I, I think it Chicago is all playing. the AAA teams and stuff. Yeah. I think pretty so much, but I'm just curious how a.
0: how you dealt with school and, and and graduating high school while I'm assuming you had to commute 75 miles at least to to get to a game
1: or practice. Yeah, my practices were in Glen Allen, which was about 50 minute drive. Uh, they were midget AA's. I mean, for what it is, it's a little less uh, time, whatever, for Triple A, time commitment than Triple A. But at the same time, lots of tournaments and weekend games. Thankfully, you know, I think hockey's got that understanding. And we've talked to my teachers beforehand, and I would miss a couple Fridays for tournaments and whatnot. But parents were always very. Hard on me to make sure I had my schoolwork done and, and you know all that stuff, getting it done and communicating with the school that when I missed, it was for a good reason. Mm-hmm.
2: So you went to play juniors down in in, Spring, in Springfield, uh, and was that af- were you after that was two years after you graduated from uh, high school? Is that right?
1: Yes, uh, maybe one year. I'm not sure. It was a long time ago, Charlie. Come
2: on, man. <laughs> So did, I, I assume you you billeted then down in Springfield. That's got to be a two-and-a-half-hour drive from, you know, your parents. So you billeted down there, and do you keep in touch with those, uh, that, those families still?
1: My first year, I did billet there. I had a really nice billet family, and it was really good. And then my second year, actually, because I was 20 years old, the coach allowed me to get an apartment and, and kind of live on my own. So me and another teammate had an apartment, which – was a good and bad idea at the same time 20 years old living on my own for the first time we had had a little bit of fun but but those uh, those are those are our those are our players now too right you look at those exactly so it's it's kind of it's scary because my career developed a little bit slower so I was still in college till almost till 24 didn't go pro till 25 Um, 20 years old with uh, now you have it's your job and you have a lot of responsibilities and people putting pressure on you to do things so I kind of understand where, where they're at, these young players coming into the league and the, the push for them to exceed at such a young age. But that, that's the game you see players that do do it, and, and they do play at the NHL at a very young age. But some guys, it just takes a little bit more time.
0: How did you get through that? I mean, we, we started off talking about how you and Travis Morin had to hold Dennis Guriano's hand as he came over here at that age. How did you handle it? Because you're the older guys on the team, I would think, when you're 20 years old.
1: Right. Yeah. And then in junior, it, it adds, I'm not sure what do you mean, what you're asking.
0: Well, I, I guess I'm asking, there are so many players who have to show the way for the young guys, we, we say, right? And where to get things and how, how to go about grocery shopping and paying bills and blah, right. blah, all of this stuff, right? Get, get, get internet, get, get electricity. Yes, exactly. Life skills. And so, who was there to show you? Was it parents coming coming by all the time? Was it the coach? Was it because at, at twenty years old playing juniors, you're the you're you're the veteran player. There's right.
2: There is, no Jarrett, there is no Jared. There is no Jared or, uh, you know, Cole Schneider to to help these guys out to help you out.
1: Yeah, for sure. I feel. I don't know. I I, I think I was raised right. I I at twenty years old, I was pretty self sufficient. I was Let's able. You know, obviously, mom and dad p- paid the bills, so that was very kind to them and nice. But at the same time, we we were required if we weren't going to school, because when you play juniors, obviously, I was done with high school. So our coach, it was required that you either take college courses or you get a job. So I had a job and I worked and
2: what did you do? What was that job?
1: I was a host at Applebee's. Ah. (laughs) I never wanted to be a waiter because I didn't want that responsibility. (laughs) I just wanted to sit people down and say I had a job. (laughs) <laughs> and then my focus was hockey Applebee's was a secondary career
0: was that the last let's say well let's say non-hockey last non-hockey job you had
1: yeah I worked some retail growing up and in college when I'd come home for the summers I did some I worked at Tommy at the outlet here in, in Kenosha or Mount Pleasant so I used to work there and then yeah I'd say that's pretty much my last uh, non-hockey job so
2: you never worked at the, uh, at the outlet malls in Gurney mills or at the hockey rink. Most people don't, uh, I shouldn't say most people. I didn't know that the the outlet malls have a hockey rink along the back side of them, uh, but they do. And it's attached to an arcade.
1: Yes. Rink side. It's, it has the potential to be a pretty cool place. It's, awesome. said, it's, it's a hockey <laughs> rink and an arcade built into one, but yeah. I don't think, I don't, not even sure if they have a team that plays out of there or where they get their bookings from, but there's a hockey rink there and it's still, still afloat.
2: Yeah. My my son played in a tournament. Uh, uh, actually it was an outdoor tournament at Lake forest, but they used that as one of the sites. And I walked in there, I was like, this is phenomenal. This place should be making bank. And I mean, I didn't know anything. I hadn't, I didn't, I wasn't so impressed that I followed up on it. Let's just put it that way. Right. <laughs> uh, so you end up at Ferris state. Did you have other offers? Uh, and what was your, what was your collegiate experience like, uh, uh, up north and uh, uh, up there
1: i did my uh, i had a couple i went on a couple visits and a couple um, like less than full ride scholarships in in the works, but when Ferris came in and offered the full ride that 's kind of it 's pretty tough to turn that down
2: it is and that 's a so, big deal yeah. too because or because colleges it's people look at football and basketball, and they think every sport is like that, but like a school like Ferris State probably has. 12 scholarships right right and they have to split those up between fulls and partials so for you to get a full ride is that that really speaks volumes of what the coach thought of you well, and your potential
0: you say that not not only not only Fair state but pretty much everywhere everyone, college, everywhere. Hockey. Everywhere. Yes, college hockey is that way like yeah. the university yes. of wisconsin does not have 30 full rides they right. have so many partials right
1: 100 percent. that's exactly how it is and and obviously yes i was Extremely happy. Actually, Jeff, Jeff Blaschel, who coaches the Red Wings now, was was the coach, the assistant coach that recruited me, came and watched me play and recruited me to come there. He left before I ever played there. He went on. Uh, but at the same time, Ferris was an awesome experience for me. And Bob Daniels, the head coach there, does a great job. He's been there for a long time. And the program itself. From when when I was there to where it is now, it just continued to grow and they go in the right direction. They do a fantastic job there. Do you uh,
2: so you finished four years, and I mean your draft year uh, theoretically it what, would have happened a number of years before uh, uh, before that. So you're a free agent coming out, and obviously you can get drafted you know afterwards, but you're a free agent coming out. Uh, talk take us through the process of, uh, of turning pro and how it happened for you.
1: Well, first of all, my draft year, there was no, like, my parents were not, I don't know, probably There was no Google then. So they're not on the Google finding out like how to push it. So I didn't even know anything about that. Like, right. I just loved to play hockey and, and got to the point where then college was done. And I had, uh, Derek Laxtell who was, he, he was coaching Boise at the time He was calling me. And then the Florida Everblades was also calling. Uh, I can't remember who the coach was there. And I honestly can't tell you why I chose to turn down Florida and go to Boise, Idaho instead, but it turned out to be the right choice because I mean, this day I'm still close with Laxdoll and we still have conversations to this day. So Yeah, I'm not really sure a college kid coming out of college why I turned down Florida.
2: I was just going to say, like, that... I don't know. That's like the premier Florida is... uh, The Everblades, who is our affiliate, is like the premier place to go in the ECHL. That's where everyone... All the guys who come up here get called up in the middle of February. They're tan. And uh, we're we're pasty white.
1: Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, to this day. But it worked out really well for me. So, good choice.
0: And then you figure out a way to get to the American
1: League oh geez like where do we start (sighs) Simsy? like (laughs) my career it's just and that's what I kind of try to teach guys it's it's not where you start it's kind of where you end and everybody's path is going to be different it doesn't matter if you're drafted undrafted um for me the turning point my career kind of was when I stopped looking around at other players and what what they were getting and where they were going who was getting called up and just focused on myself And not, not as an individual, but just internally focused on what I can do to be a better player. And, and, and if I did that and didn't get what I wanted or didn't get called up, well, then at least, you know, I could live with myself. But for me, uh, the American league was an up and down battle for three years. I think it was going up and down. I remember my second year in the East coast league, I was playing again for Laxdoll and Boise. And I think I went to Albany got sent down, went to Rockford, was in an airport, got called up to Manitoba. All while this time, me and Lena, were we were engaged. And so she was still finishing up her pharmacy degree in North Carolina. So she'd be flying to come see me. And then I'd be getting called up. It was, we were all over the map. And uh, when I finally stuck in Manitoba that first year and had a first full year in the American League, it, it's pretty cool how, how you feel. But then you start to get that, okay, now I want to play in the NHL. You get I
2: mean, the, and, and, the, itch, the itch doesn't go yeah.
0: away. No. You, you said, you said uh, all that moving around. Um, I don't know if you know Trevor Mangoya. He played, before, I think, the year before you, you came to Milwaukee. I, I'm sure you played against him somewhere along the way. But he was a guy in the ECHL, and the year before, he did what you said. He bounced around to several teams, and then he signed a, a deal with Milwaukee, and that was it. And so that would be the only place he could go. And I asked him, I said, that just seems weird to me because you're t- you're cutting your potential employers from 30 to one. And mm-hmm. he said that it saved him so much when it comes to peace of mind because he did exactly what you said. He would go nuts. I, I'm better than that guy. Why is he going up? And I'm sitting here. It, it was just driving him crazy. So once he it, – it, it helped him. And I – I found that really interesting but it, it's a mind over matter thing I guess is basically what it comes down to is whatever you need for that peace of mind to figure it out and like you said you quit worrying about others um, that, that that helps a lot
1: for sure hockey it's it's a battle of the mind for sure especially a lot of people don't understand what it takes to get to the NHL and how hard it is and, and the mental battle it, it is and um, watching your peers you know some of them get elevated at a faster rate and and you know when you compare yourself against them sometimes you might feel you're a step ahead but being on the other side of things now I really gotten to know that you know some things are truly out of a player's hands there's there's decisions that have to be made for certain reasons whether it's salary cap reasons or or whatever they might be so the fact that you know selling that message of just focus on what you can do and then be happy with that. And then just trust that it's going to come for you is, is definitely advice that now I know that it worked for me and being on the other side of it is it's truly, you have to have that mindset because you can get consumed by it and it'll just ruin your game.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's not just who the best available player is. We talk about that like in a, from a draft perspective is let's, pick the best player but when guys are getting called up whether it's to Nashville or it's from Florida to Milwaukee there there's oftentimes there's a need and does this guy fill that need and if he doesn't then you have to look somewhere else and it's not just a you know a, a forward or a defenseman thing sometimes you need a guy to kill penalties or to win face-offs uh, and, or sometimes
0: it's even political in the right. fact that this guy's a first round pick first round we're gonna pick give, we him, gotta a give him a crack at it even, yeah you know and not saying that goes on all the time. I think it happened more in the past that way, but it, but it certainly still does.
1: For sure.
2: 100%. And so you uh, – when you became uh, – I think this is a funny story, uh, and I sympathize with the Idaho Steelheads uh, in regards to this, because when, when you became a full-time American Hockey League player, Idaho had planned a bobblehead, a Greg Rollo bobblehead. <laughs> Is that not, that's that's
1: correct, right? Charlie goes even, like, we bought a house in Boise. I was, I think, 29 or 30 years old, and I had just finished a year in Manitoba, a full year in the American League, and, you know, I was 29. It kind of sunk in a little bit that, you know, I was on the fourth line, third line at best, wasn't playing a ton. Like, I just really wanted to play. Like, I knew my years were creeping up on me, and so I wanted to play. And I wanted to be a part of something. And so me and my wife made a decision. We talked to Coach Laxdall. We went we bought a house in Boise and I was gonna play in the East Coast League and then, you know, be selective. If a good call up came that, you know, was potential that I felt that I was gonna get a good opportunity, we would go. So we were we were good with starting a family we were newly married and we were just going to stay in Boise and it was going to and you know I was going to play and play play a lot because I in the East Coast League I was able to put up numbers and and got good playing time and I went to and like you said they were going to have a bobblehead that night that they or that year that they planned and uh, Texas was the Stars was the affiliate for Idaho so like they do every year they bring some of the East Coast guys up for camp for numbers and and me and Travis Morin was there also on a tryout that year. That's and crazy. And the two of us made the team. Like, that doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> me and him both made the team that year. I don't know what it was. I don't, I don't know how. On the, now being on my side of it and on the management side, I don't know how we got two spots because those spots are hard to come by. Really hard to come by. Coaches and management, they talk about that stuff all summer. Who's taking what spot? Where, who's going where? And so somehow we got two spots on that team and never played another game in the East coast league. So there's like a, I said, who knows what your career and how it's going to go. I was ready to, to just be an East coaster. And then next thing you know, I played in the NHL and played six, seven more years in the American league. It's hockey takes crazy turns. And I learned, don't give up on yourself. And there's a pocket of fans, after that.
0: There's a pocket of fans in Boise, Idaho that are still mad as hell. <laughs> yeah, they you, could have had a dynasty in Boise. In the, in right, the with
2: Travis Moran and Greg Rallo. I am anchoring D. it, right. Yeah. Uh, and Jeremy Yablonski, did you play
1: with uh, Yablonski? Oh, I did play with Yabo. Yeah. Is, there's there is definitely two Yabos. There's the off ice Yabo and there's the on ice Yabo. Off ice, he is the biggest teddy bear. Oh, has yeah. A little daughter, nicest guy. On ice, scary. So, did you go to his <laughs> did
0: he fight when you were out there did you go to his fights his mma like an mma I fight go
1: to, i went to the very first one where he had like took a couple of our teammates walked him out all in steelhead jerseys it was just straight east coast hockey league it was awesome <laughs> he, it didn't last very long the guy kind of ran from him he caught him like got him down on the ground it was yeah I would, I would too,
2: honestly. Yeah. If uh, Jeremy Belansky <laughs> was coming at me, our our own, our, our owner uh, Harris Turner, tells a funny story about when y- uh, Yabo got called up here. He sees him in the dressing room for the like you know, within the first week, and Harris is changing or something, and Yabo comes in there and like asks him a question, but he's he he was he, the way it, he, the way Harris says it, it was like yeah, the, what he asked me. Like it just scared me. Like I, I it, it was so he was so intimidated by this big, strong, enormous individual that uh, he didn't understand that he was actually, like you say, a, a teddy bear off the ice. In spite of what his YouTube videos uh, might show at part at at weddings in Russia, we'll just yeah. leave that for a uh, a different time. Um, yeah.
0: Would so, you hear that? Do you, do you go seek those out? Do I? You hear when you hear no, Greg. Greg. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you know Jeremy Yablonski. I don't know if you know John Morasti, but you know, him. You know of know him, sure. Of them, yes.
1: yeah, I His played reputation. against him. I knew how to stay away from him. Did you play, <laughs> did
2: you play against him? Because I don't ever remember him being in the uh, Western Conference.
1: When I played in Manitoba, we the Syracuse team that year had Morasti, Sosquito, Dorsett, Kanopka. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like they were like I like I try to tell guys, guys just our young guys don't understand like and <laughs> I'm not even that old. Like this was only like ten years ago how <laughs> scary it really hockey was out there. So yeah. like that portal struggles so much with like we try to tell guys like, Hey, you gotta get to the net and it's hard and we're just like they don't even like, You have no idea. Back then, they literally didn't even know there was a puck on the ice. They, <laughs> they were not out there to play hockey; they were out there to hurt somebody. And so, you had to keep your head up at all times when when you played those boys. And, and I, I
2: mean, I don't, I don't want to belabor this forever, but uh, Marasti and Yablonski, if I'm not mistaken, they're cousins.
0: I think that's like, right.
2: They're related to each other, and they had just some of the most ridiculous like fights, and it was. It was like people were going to watch those those games to see Morasti and Yablonski fight. They weren't necessarily saying like they weren't going to watch the hockey. They want to see these guys battle.
1: That's and to take it even another step further. Like uh, Trevor Gillies is another name you can throw oh. in the mix there. Yeah. Um, they were Trevor and Yabo were best men in each other's weddings <laughs> and used to just pound on each other in <laughs> games. But they're each other's best man in weddings. It's, it was just a different different game then. Did, was it like that
2: in the, in the coast at all? Were there, was it, uh, was it, you know, heavy handed? They really, they, they filtered that out of the NHL and it got out of the AHL pretty quickly. Did that funnel down to the ECHL then?
1: Not when I was there, I'm not sure what it's like today, but it was like, there was two ways to get out of the East coast league that, what that I saw was either you, you'd you be the leading scorer and you you'd get your shot that way, or you the leading you'd Pimmer yourself the other way. So. Yeah. So there was definitely guys that I think like Zach Fitzgerald and Yabo, they kind of, they got their way out of the East Coast League and worked their way into the American League. Uh, Huxley did it a little bit as well. Names that I remember in my playing time that kind of, you know, toughed their way into the American League. And there was still a need for it at that point. And I still think there's some form of a need for toughness on your team today.
0: You You go to Texas and you kind of – even though, and I'm curious who your realtor is, by the way, He's buying a house in Boise, <laughs> buy a movie, you must have the best real, I don't know if it's the same person in all the, all the yeah. communities you've been, but you have found great realtors uh, along the way, but you didn't necessarily stay in Texas though, or in Austin the whole time, you were back and forth a lot with San Antonio, it, real interesting, how did you keep, did home stay in one spot or did you all move to, a, to San Antonio, move back to Austin, how did it work for you guys?
1: we moved to the cities that we were in, but we stayed there pretty much year round. Uh, Pretty much once we started having kids, like the typical pro player goes home to their hometown in the summer, like forget people that don't know. Uh, But once we started having kids and my wife was a pharmacist, so she, she got a job in the playing cities that I was in. uh, We would pretty much live there year round. So my first two, I played two years in Austin, and then three years in San Antonio, and then two years back in Austin. And honestly, the only reason why I left Austin was because uh, for an NHL opportunity with sure. the Florida Panthers. Like it was, it worked out. It, it was, it did work out. It was one of the hardest decisions because I'm, I'm a pretty loyal person, I feel. And um, I had already had a contract with Texas that year, signed for an American League only deal. But then um, Florida offered an NHL two way end. Like I, like I often say and the reason why I made it, is, you know, I didn't dream of playing in the American League. I dreamed of playing in the NHL. So I wanted to get to the NHL and that was the only chance. And it ended up working out. I did play my game, but it was definitely tough, tough decision.
0: It's You bring up a great point, though, that players in the American Hockey League, um, they don't dream about the American Hockey League. It's no offense to the American Hockey League. It's no, no offense to the fans or anything like that. But um, – you talk about getting good veterans and all of this stuff. And uh, I know Colton Sissons was concerned if he had the C, if he was the captain of the team, would he still be called up? I know that was a conversation with Jared Tenorti, that just because you have the C doesn't mean we're not going to call you up. And I mean, those are are legitimate concerns. And this gets back to what we were talking about before, about when you call a player up, the reasoning behind it. Um, If you're a good player, no matter your age, whether it's 20 – 18 32 whatever it might be that, that dream is still there it doesn't die
1: no and you're hundred percent correct there's there's zero disrespect to the American Hockey League it's I mean it's a, it's it's a privilege to play at that level you have to earn it to play at that level but I I wouldn't want a player on my team that doesn't aspire to get to the NHL like right. it's you have to have that drive inside that you want to play at the highest level you can physically possibly play at so that's kind of my mindset and even our older veterans that guys like, um, like Tenorti did it and um, Donovan played for Nashville, like some of, and Schneider, guys that are pushing, they push every day. They push our young guys because they still have that urge. They still want to play in the NHL and it's great to see. And I think that's part of our success is our older guys still, you know, have that fire inside to, to push themselves. How do you know when a guy's ready?
0: What does it take? I, 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 the reason I bring that up is I'm sure you at least played against Nick Spaulding, And Spaulding came down, and it was a numbers thing, and he came down to start the season after this unbelievable camp, they said, in Nashville. And when he came down, and I could see it, and I'm by no means any, any sort of expert when it comes to what it takes to get to the National Hockey League. But you could see, like, every shot had a purpose. It, it was just different from all the other guys on the ice. He went, back, he went up, and he never came back. And I'm curious, when do you know? When can you see um, whether you were a player or now as a coach, when is that player ready? When is he ripe to be picked?
1: Right. And that's so hard to, to pinpoint, I think. It, there's so much things that come in, into context. Like, let's just say a, a young guy like Pitt, like for us, who, you know, I'm not sure his exact numbers, but he had 20 plus goals, whatever, yep. whatever it was this year, right? So he's a young player and he does that. And if you're not year. scoring a goal in the first like right. 10 games. Right. Exactly. So a guy like that, do you want to call him up to the NHL to play him on a fourth line role? Because your top six guys are already, you know, they're playing right now. So it's tough to, to get those guys out of those lineup roles. So a guy like him, he's just kind of, he needs to continue to build and um, develop and continue to score goals at our level. So one of those spots, he's going to go in there and steal one of those spots or one of those spots opens up. But then like a grind guy, he's ready when he's willing to, when I think for me is when he's willing to do it every single game. That's, that's a telltale sign. Like we have some of our guys that are right on the bubble of, of, of taking jobs, I think in Nashville on the bottom six roll, the third or fourth line, but it's consistency. It's willing to show up and do it every game at our level, because you get up there, you might only get one game. And if you don't do it, that might've been your shot. So, I like to see a, a guy that in that situation, you know, not, not that he's not skilled, but a, a lower six forward that would go up and play that role, do it consistently every single night at our level. That's when we kind of can tell that we would push for, for that guy to get his opportunity.
0: We, Charlie mentioned this earlier, that, that the fighting has kind of moved out of everywhere. I'm curious, as the game evolves and as we all evolve, when are we going to get away from – the traditional roles of lines right or are we you know first line is a scoring line second line is a complementary scoring line third line is your checking line fourth line is your energy line who's to say that connor mcdavid wouldn't be on your fourth line i mean just just i'm just throwing that out there um no you know you get it you get a team that has four centers you know why is malkin the second center instead of the first center with crosby that kind of thing right i mean that's more of a 1A 1B. Do you think we're ever going to get out of that situation?
1: I think we're fairly close to it. I think um you can't really have a fourth line like I like we were talking about that Syracuse team uh, you know that didn't <laughs> right. know that there was a puck out there. You can't you can't do that anymore. Guys are too skilled, too fast to have that. And a good example was that I I'm pretty sure uh first game in the Dallas Stars series Jamie Benn was playing on the fourth line with Red. Boxa and I think Guys are interchangeable now and you can shake things up because even your technically your fourth line players, they can still play the game of hockey. Now they, they can, you know, they all, everybody can skate. Now you have to be able to skate to play at our level. And then especially at the NHL level, anybody can score. You saw that last year with our team, we got scoring from all four lines last year, which really helps the team. So, I mean, you're always going to have your top six. I think, I think that's never really going to go away, but I think the, the typical roles of third, fourth line checking is evolving into, they're still, they still play hard and heavy like our team, like Tanner and, and Olivier, but they can also contribute offensively and, and, and do things that you know, maybe the, the old school third, fourth line players weren't able to do.
2: Let's uh, go back just a little bit to what you were saying before about guys going up, getting one game, and then coming back. And that's what happened to you. Uh, your first game in the NHL, uh, first of all, though, I want to, I always like to ask the guys, talk us, talk us through how you found out you were going up, who your first game was with and all of, did your parents go down all that, uh, uh all the butterflies that go with it. And then you get sent back afterwards, or maybe you stay a day or two. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, did you, were you, did you think you're ever going to make it back? Did it drive you more or did it make you think like, Oh my God, was that my shot?
1: A little bit of both. Uh, I just remember my first one was, it was after a game coach called me in to his office and said, you know, who's I thought, your, who's I was your in...
2: coach at that, uh, at that time, Chuck Weber, Chuck was the coach in San Antonio. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, uh, he called he was me a, in. He was and... a coach
2: with the admirals, you know,
1: was he? Yeah. Yeah. He, he was. was
2: right on his way up. He worked for uh, Peter Horachek as the video coach. Yeah.
1: He, I also played for Peter. He's an awesome guy, but, um, yeah so Chuck called me into his office and just we had just lost the game so I thought and at that time I was the leader on the team I was like oh boy I'm here we go (laughs) here we go and he's like you're going up and I'm like what he goes you're going you're going to Florida and I was just like I'm supposed to be upset that we just lost the game but I was 30 years old I think I'm like could not be happier inside like like it was instant change of emotion for sure and uh, my sister was in town and obviously my wife was at the game that night And I remember walking out of the locker room and when you when you go up they have you know your NHL club's bag that they pack your gear in and so I had the Florida Panthers bag in my in in my arm and I remember just seeing my wife and just showing her the logo and she just was like what and I just just emotion like it it was such a cool experience and then you know, first game wasn't that great. I played four minutes, I think, if that. But just who, who was it against? Jeez, uh, that's a good question. Tampa, I think it was. Okay. I'm not 100% sure because where I was going is then the the following year, I got called up and ended up sticking around for 10, 10 straight games. So it was more of a taste, a feel of it. I was there for, I think, five or six weeks and got to actually live, live the lifestyle, which – I'll never understand how they complain because someone who's grinded <laughs> away in the American hockey league for my entire career. That right. was who's taken the bus real, from,
2: from yeah. Austin to Houston or, uh, you yeah. know, from Rockford to, uh, Des Moines.
0: Well, and, yeah. and, and, and the American league is quick to point out that what, 85% of NHL players all play to the American league. So right. they, they, there shouldn't be any complaining. They should know better. And then
1: it's like, um, like it's like I writ my own story because, like, uh, I played in Toronto, in Winnipeg, in Madison Square Garden, uh, played in Boston.
2: Right, all, all the hallowed the- places. So
1: it's just like, yeah, I got all the cool places checked off my list in my ten games. The only place missing was Chicago. Being a Chicago kid, I would have would have loved to get would've a game awesome. in there. But yeah. With that said, ten games, living the life that they live, uh, is pretty nice and pretty 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 glamorous I and, think, and, i'd say, I have to say and talk about you're you are
2: there's not a lot of guys there actually just was a book just published about this about guys who have one goal in the in their national hockey league careers and i know this because darren hadar is one of them and he was he was featured in this book mm-hmm. uh but you're another guy who scored one goal in the nhl talk to us to tell us what happened
1: i just remember coming out of the corner with it and hit who, was, the who was it against Tampa, I know that one for sure. The, the plaques are back in, right behind me. Oh, nice. Seed on the wall for the, you guys. But, uh, yeah, I just remember coming out of the corner and passed it up to the point and went to the net and was getting cross-checked by a big defenseman. I don't remember who it was. And next thing you know, the puck was in the net. So my uh, response to the Porters after the game was uh, they got better cameras than they do in the American League. So if they're doing me credit for it, I'll take it. <laughs>
0: So where did it hit you? Where or it go, In or you the didn't pants, even feel
1: it? Yeah. In the pants. Like Yakov Trennan. and Trent scored a yeah. goal like that this year. Yeah. So, Hey, like I said, they gave it to me, so I'll take it. Yeah. I was just, yeah. I was just doing anything I could to stay. I just went to the net and was hanging out there.
2: Right. Uh, like our old assistant coach, Stan Drulia said, and you know, Stan, like mm-hmm. he had, we had him on this podcast a while ago and he was a prolific scorer in the IHL and Aaron asked him like, You scored all your goals from the net. And his response is, why wouldn't you go to the net? That's Mm -hmm. where 75% of the goals are scored right there. So why wouldn't you? And is is that a tough message? This now goes into sort of a coaching question. Is that a tough message for you to get across to to kids now who have probably spent most of their careers being the the best player, the most talented guy on the ice. They didn't have to go to the hard areas to score.
0: Shooting from the Ovechkin spot all the time.
2: Right, 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 exactly. Stand at the top of the circle and, and, and rip a slapper or dangle around guys and, you know, go top cheese between their legs. That doesn't cut it here anymore. How do you get that across to guys?
1: My message is, like, even the most skilled guys on our team, they'll be able to score 15, 20 goals doing what they normally do, staying on the outside, being just super skilled. Like, they can score those goals by beating play, players one-on-one. But if they want to become, you know, 25, 30, 35 goals at our level, you're going to have to get to those areas. So my message is, like, do you want to be the elite goal scorer or do you just want to get by and score your 15 or 20? Yeah, So and that's, ha- that's kind of how we sell it or and how it. I
2: sell it. It helps also to have a guy like Daniel Carr, who's the reigning American Hockey League MVP, who that's what he does, right? Like yeah, he exactly. goes to the hard areas and Cole he Schneider. works his butt off. Yeah,
1: yeah Cole, Cole Schneider, Schneider right. Dan Carr, like those guys, like it's, and that's how I scored a majority of my goals as well. Like I, I, I rarely ever beat a defenseman one-on-one and then went in and dangled yeah. the goalie. Pull drag was,
2: around for that, a top 10
1: highlight. That was not in my toolbox. I just went to the net and shot the puck as hard as I could that's what guys (laughs) ask like how you score goals shoot it really really hard so the goalie can't see it like like I don't I don't don't know what else to tell you like just go to the net hard and shoot it really hard when you get an opportunity because it's hard to get good scoring chances so that's that's something like you work on in practice it's guys that come down in practice and just kind of shoot off one leg those are bad habits getting in good habits because You might only get one, or you look at stat sheets, guys get one, maybe two. Like, some guys will get four or five shots a night, but how many of those are from prime scoring areas? You can really break it down that way. So if you have one prime scoring area shot in a game, you better make sure you're shooting it hard and and, and hitting the net.
0: Well, yeah, and and to continue with Charlie's thought, Yakov Trenin had like a 30% shooting percentage this year, and Mm -hmm. that's unsustainable, obviously, but – the vast majority of them were him standing in front of the net and deflecting something from a hard shot.
1: Just going to the net and willing to do whatever it takes to get it in. It's it's, it's an art that, like I said, it can, it could take you to a whole nother level of goal scoring. Do you sense,
0: and I'm not asking for names, but is when we talk about going to the net, is there is it fear or is it more of um is it fear of getting hit or is it fear of it's something we haven't done before? So we're uncomfortable doing
1: it. I think a little bit of both, not so much fear. I wouldn't say fear. I think it's just players just, they're they're more skilled now than ever before and which is a credit to them. And they, they always kind of want to have the puck and make plays. And so that, that brings me to the, like, yes, you can still do all that stuff. We're not trying to take away any of your skill. We want you to use your skill, but, There's times in a game where we don't want you hanging out waiting for a pass. We want you to get into the net because, you know, a certain situation where our our D-man will be walking the blue line looking to get a shot on net and and you're standing off on the board waiting for a pass back. Like, at some point, we got to attack the net. Like, we we got to, you know, take the skill out of it and, and get to the net and put pucks to the net. So you do a great job setting up a play, get it back to the point. Now it's time to get your butt to the net and hopefully tip one in or find a rebound how did you end
0: up in Milwaukee coaching coaching talk yeah. about the story about how you got into, got into coaching with the admirals.
1: Yeah. So when I, it, I think originally I, I definitely wanted to play at least another year, but um, that didn't work out in Texas. They, they, you know, obviously for whatever reasons, they would just you, politely. Sorry but would,
0: would you have gone somewhere else? I mean, did you, would you have gone to Hartford or would you have gone or would it have had to have been Austin or San Antonio for your family?
1: Um, probably most likely, it's tough to say now if like an offer came on the table, but there was, there's definitely no offers that I was 36 years old. So they weren't knocking down the door to to sign a sign an old guy. Um, but once Texas said, no, I think for a brief stint, Carl tried to possibly see if I could play here for the admirals, but they had their veterans pretty much all locked up because there's the veteran rule in in the American league. So, which is understanding. Um, and then, pretty much for me, I had two job opportunities. Uh, I had one with Texas to become like an AHL player development guy. I would live in Austin and run, you know, just be at practices, wouldn't travel with the team, but just kind of oversee, you know, players in Austin at the AHL level. And then Carl gave me a call and asked if I'd be interested in coaching, and then he would throw my name in the mix. And I said, a hundred percent. So for me, the decision was, you know, at this point I always wanted to coach and, and the, the chance to like, I, I fully recognize and fully appreciate, you know, where I'm starting my coaching career. I recognize that a lot of people work a long time to get to where I, the seat that I have right now, coaching in the American hockey league. And like I said, I have great respect for the league. So I understand. Um, it was An offer that I felt that I, at this stage in my career, I had to take. Like I had to give coaching a shot because it was always something I wanted to do, and I had the chance, and it was not on the table. So when they presented the offer, it was a difficult call to Texas to say that I was leaving, but at the same time, I knew it was the right choice for me personally because I wanted to coach. And I mean, for lack of a better way to say it, I I skipped a lot of levels and started right in the American Hockey League, which which I appreciate and I understand, and I respect, respect and the position. And what
0: you're, your, and you're, Oh, I'm sorry, Aaron. Go ahead. I was ahead. just going to say, what was your, uh, I was just going to follow up real quick about what your presentation was like or what your, what the process was like. Cause I, I guess people could assume cause you had the relationship with Carl that you just moved in. Right. But you had mm-hmm. uh, obviously Scott Nickel, David Poyle. I'm sure there are many people that you have to talk to. Sign to off for, on this. Yeah. You're the right.
1: Guy, yeah. Right. For sure. Um, I was in Canada at the time, my wife's from Canada, we were up in Canada when this all happened. And so I talked a lot with Scott Nickel on the phone, um, had multiple conversations with him about it. And then when it started to get real serious, that's when I had an on-phone interview with all of Nashville. So it was David, Brian, Kelty, Scott Nickel, they were all on the phone. And uh, a majority of the questions were steered towards how I was a leader in, in as a player, um, different situations, give, me, give them an examples on how I helped young guys get to the NHL or how I helped a young guy, you know, get out of a scoring slump. Um, for me, the, the example I use, there's a player named Devin Shore, yeah. who uh, he came out of the gate so hot with our, with our team in Texas. I forgot what he had, like 18 goals before Christmas or something crazy. And then he got called up to Dallas and he played a while in Dallas. But then when he got sent down, we kind of had a flow going and he was playing on the third line where he used to be on the first line. And then he wasn't on the first power play because things were just clicking for our team. And so for me, it was, I had a really good conversation with him. Just, you know, stick the course. Like this is not a demotion by you, just kind of taught him that this is kind of how pro hockey works and you're fine. Like they don't think bad of you now. Like you just kind of have to work your way back in and sure enough, like he's been in the NHL, ever since pretty much I think after that year I don't think he's ever played again in the the AHL so that's just kind of how my process went with them it was a bit of an intimidating uh phone conversation uh it was my first like I said I haven't had a job interview in 12 years, it's Applebee's. Well, yes, years. It's
2: Applebee's. a little <laughs> and a little different yeah. than to talking to Dave the, one of the most renowned general managers exactly. alive and the general manager of Applebee's there's a different a little bit of a uh, a different I remember comparison too,
1: and Scott Nichols like yeah uh, so we're gonna move forward here we're, you're part of the interview process I think it was down to like three people he goes just send over your resume and we're, and we're gonna schedule a call and I'm just like resume um, Here, here's, my, here's my my hockey DB hockey for 12 years like right no one's asked me for my resume ever so card I have a very very smart wife and we sat down and we made a, a, a presentable resume in about four hours so it was it was awesome and,
2: and and you you get hired in Milwaukee which to circle to take this full circle is an hour from your boy at home, boyhood home. So your, your parents must have been thrilled, especially with grandkids having getting you moved up from Texas, which is a plane, obviously a plane ride. Excuse me to Milwaukee, where you're you can see him anytime, whether you want to or not.
1: Absolutely, it's like since college for me, this is definitely the closest I've been to home. So it's very very nice. My being close to Chicago as well, like flights from my in-laws. Granted, they're in Canada right now and they can't come here, but um, it it, it was a great fit. And to be able to see my brother and sister more, I mean, there was times where I was only seeing my brother and sister maybe once a year. So it's definitely been, been a positive in that aspect that my kids now know their uncles and aunts and their nephews or their cousins much, much better than, you know, if we were still in Texas right now.
2: I'd also be remiss to, I can't believe I've never asked you this before. Did, did you ever go to an Uh-oh. Admiral's? Did you ever go to an Admiral's game when you were a kid?
1: Sorry to say no, I have to be honest. I, I always went to Wolves games. I, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah, I know. But, uh, the Wolves when I was growing up, they were in that kind of Wendell Young era. Like Steve it was multi. Fast. Yeah. Like yeah. it was Robbie Brown, as entertaining man. as a Blackhawks game. And as a kid, you didn't know any different then for sure. And, um, I got a taste of, and that's kind of that was my United Center kind of going back and right. getting and to play. At when that you were a kid, when you were up. a
2: kid going to a Wolves game, they were still playing kickstart My Heart" to start to uh, begin the game, and they were not still shooting off the same fireworks with the same blow up whatever they have going on the ice. Not that it wow. irritates me at all, but you know,
1: Charlie, there has not there's not a single thing I think that changed since I, I remember all of that as a kid and now, and then I also remember it standing on the blue line for the national anthem. Like, I think the it, coolest part of the Wolves games now that it's changed is Wayne Messmer singing the singing national the anthem. anthem like that. Like guys don't understand, like as a kid that grew up in Chicago, the anthems at the old Chicago, Chicago stadium, stadium yeah. with Wayne singing it, like there was, that's like just straight. Well, I get, I just got chilled now. Yeah, no,
0: it. I agree with you. And yeah. mine, mine isn't, I love Wayne Mesmer. I'm from Minneapolis, but I love Wayne Mesmer because when I, I, I was in school, uh, the Cubs didn't have lights at Wrigley field. Yeah. So at one o'clock every summer, Every summer day at one o'clock, you could watch the Cubs, and Wayne Messmer was doing the anthem at every Cubs game back then. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. So when when you see Wayne, um, it's awesome.
1: I yeah, I, love I still it. love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Did, were,
0: you, were you a Hawks guy? Did you ever go to the old stadium?
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. I grew up in Chicago. I was with Cubs, Hawks, Bears, all all the Chicago teams. I know that doesn't go over well in, in Wisconsin very much when I talk to people, but you got to be, be so, who you are. Well,
0: I, I, the Hawks thing, there, there are so many Wisconsin fans uh, state mm-hmm. of Wisconsin fans that if they have a hockey team, it's Chicago and it makes all the sense in the world because of the proximity. But who, who was your guy then? Who, who were who were you into?
1: I, I mean, back then, like I, uh, Pavel, Bur- like I wasn't like, if you asked me my favorite players back then, it was like Joe Sack and Pavel Bure and, those guys were the two that kind of stood out in my you're mind from,
0: you're not from bc though every bc guy no, says joe Sackick, right you're not, from, you're not from bc i know if you're from I toronto used, with wendell clark it's just
1: because i i used this curve for so long for, yeah.
0: <laughs> if you're toronto it's wendell clark and if you're bc yeah. any, anywhere out west it's joe Sakic. everybody yeah i
1: hear you but uh yeah the hawks are just I don't know. They just—it was fun back then. Like I remember listening to the—I would fall asleep listening to the games on the radio because you couldn't watch them on TV yeah, right. when I was a kid. They like would not televise the home games, and and that whole—you know—thing that that'll go down and never understand it. But
2: right. Yeah. Pat Foley actually got hired yeah. away from – I don't know if you, re, if you knew this or where you were, but Pat Foley was hired away from the Blackhawks. Or, no, he got fired, I think, and the Wolves hired him as just a mm-hmm. thumb and a poke in the eye with Don uh, Gene, Gene Buryaki, with Don Levine. That's what he did was he thumbed his eye. He <laughs> put his thumb in the eye of the Blackhawks all the time, every game on TV, hire uh-huh. Pat Foley, give away – like when the, the lockout happened in 0405. hey, we've got hockey. The other people don't. We'll give you your money back if you sign sea like and that's how they built up their uh the the fan base in Chicago was yeah. saying, Hey, we're we're a better alternative than the uh, than the Blackhawks.
1: Yeah, and the, the Chicago kid and me, I wish that they they'd get along a little bit because I think uh if you could have the Blackhawks uh prospects oh, playing sure. in Chicago, I think the All State would just be because hockey really grown in the Chicago area since the Blackhawks and all their Cup wins, and I think it would just be packed. But it is what it is, I guess.
2: Yeah. How, how much? As, about, as, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. As a ahead. Chicago kid, how much did you enjoy the Last Dance? The uh, uh, the series. Did you? Were you all in on that?
1: Yeah, I actually watched it. I it was great. I mean, it's so cool to for me like the the biggest message that I took from it and it's what I firmly firmly believe and how we try to raise our kids is when he said he got cut from the high school team and he came home and told his mom and she said she just looked at him and said well better work harder right and like I I cannot agree with that more it's not the coach's fault it's not you know so-and-so's fault it's look yourself in the mirror and 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 kind of persevere that way and obviously it it worked out pretty well for him not that that's gonna happen for everybody that works hard but i I love that mindset that you know she she didn't baby him she she told him how it is and and told him to get to work and that's kind of the way we try to try to help our kids through things you
0: could have been think about it when you get cut from those uh midget teams that you were trying out in chicago uh you could very well have been a third baseman somewhere
1: Mm -hmm, for sure he very easily could have just gave up and change sports or, or did something else but did you ever have uh, another
0: sport did you ever play all the others
1: no I I mean not nothing competitively I I played a lot of golf growing up uh, but then baseball pretty much fizzled out for me once I got to high school didn't play much like hockey not that it was a year I didn't really play like um, organized hockey in the summer but you know definitely would do a camp here or there or was on the rollerblades every day with buddies in the streets. And I think that's kind of a lost, lost thing these days. I mean, I got, I got better in the summer, not going to endless camps. I got better in the summer by playing street hockey with my Uh, buddies every day.
2: I, I actually, I always say that, that that's one of the downfalls of hockey is that it happens on ice and ice is expensive. And so there's this constant need to, to to regiment everything here's we got an hour we're going to make the most of it whereas like other sports like for instance baseball a kid might not figure out because you can't throw a curveball in a game but he can go in his backyard and throw curveballs till he's dead like he you figure out you're really good at at doing something because you're just dinking around not because Mm -hmm. it it, this was a prescribed uh, uh part of practice and and i think that goes to your point of just dinking around this summer in the, in the, in the street and they, uh, with your rollerblades on.
1: Yeah. You know? I agree with you more. Like that's some of my best childhood memories are, are the street hockey games for sure. hundred like, percent.
0: When I saw what great. you were doing this summer, it reminded me of that. You're doing the drills and you having your kids in the garage, doing the drills that you have for your, for your hockey schools, your hockey camps. That's what it reminded me of doing some skill work, but it's dry land and you're having fun and you're making little games out of it. and, and all of that. I mean, it's, it, it, yes, there was an order to it, but at the same time it was, you know, we're not taking, it's like you say, as a coach, we're not taking away your creativity. We're going to, there's a plan, but we're not going to, we're going to have some fun with this.
1: No, you're, and you're, that's a hundred percent my mindset as a, like I try to help youth coaching and I'm trying to help, you know, I have my own summer camps and, and my own teaching and, and you have to make it fun and no, there's no, you know, new way of doing things. It's just people trying to recreate things. And for me, it's, it's the basics It's you have to learn how to skate as a, as a young hockey player. It's so important to, to skate. You see the guys that excel at the NHL level and you're not going to see, I mean, I mean, I don't think you can honestly say there's one guy that's excelling at the NHL level. That's a terrible skater, maybe Ovechkin, but he shoots at 115 miles an hour. Right.
2: (laughs) And he weighs 275
1: pounds. He's a tank, but Skating so so important. So, like you said, it's it's not like making it complicated or regimented. It's it's hidden hidden work, hidden edge work, hidden stick handling work, all while maintaining competitive games. And that's kind of my my, my focus on, on things. And if you I you'll be so surprised if if you put some sort of competitiveness on it or make it a game, how much harder they'll actually do the drill correctly versus just standing in a line doing the drill.
2: Right. Yeah. You've got, uh, for those of you, for people who haven't seen it, you've got, uh, you, this, and this is a COVID project, I believe, like the most amazing basement. It's gotta be a, you know, a, a tie. You just need banners. That's what you need is banners. Uh, with so some of your, to
0: come over to your house. Right, right.
2: Yeah, so. <laughs> Maybe we can make that happen. Who knows? Uh, but t- tell us a little bit about your basement and what you have going on down there.
1: Yeah, my wife and I, we've talked about it for a couple years now. We've, we've wanted to get uh, synthetic ice of some sort, and it just seemed like a good time. And uh, we did a 16 by 20 feet section off in, our, in the corner of our basement, and it's been awesome. It's, uh, my kids alone have been, like Ryder, my little guy, he's down there every day. On it, on it usually by himself so it's been a great babysitter at that point too as well <laughs> he right. goes down there and just got to tie his skates and he'll skate by himself but it's also big enough for me that like I can get out there and skate around with them and, and do things and show them things it's been really great and I really enjoy it and we built boards to go with it with logos and uh, I did it I tried to do it right the only thing you know like you said I might need to get some video boards or something going down there or maybe a scoreboard <laughs>
0: <laughs> the synthetic ice give me an idea because i i hear about it i don't know that i've ever seen it you are on skates obviously you're not going to kick up a ton of snow are you i mean how do you stop how do you how does all of this work
1: so the best way to describe it would be like kind of like skating like on bad ice i guess you'd say like they say it's like a 10 to 15 percent uh restriction compared to like a glide on a real ice so for sure, like I tell every kid that gets on it or even myself, like the first time you get on it, like go slow. And sure enough, every time they get on it, they take two steps and straight down because it is stickier. Like you have to get used to it. But once you're used to it, it's pretty much you can stop, you can turn, you can pivot, you can do everything on it once you're used to the little bit of grab it has to it because it's, it's not ice, but it's pretty dang close, especially when, once you get the feel for it. You can, I can do go forward to backwards. I can do a full hockey stop and pretty much it just kicks up like little shavings of plastic that, you know, about once a week, I have to just sweep, sweep it up off. and Zamboni it. Yeah. <laughs> Zamboni it's, it. It's, it's incredibly awesome. Like uh, the kid in me, just I could be down there all day on there because how, it's, how thick it's is ice it? in the basement. How thick um, is- they come in different thicknesses. Obviously the thicker they get, the more expensive because the longer it lasts. Sure. Uh, I I'm not sure how thick mine is, maybe three quarter inch. Okay. Uh, the one that I ended up getting, they say it's a minimum of five years per side. So you can flip it.
0: Per side, it okay. So it's, yeah, it's ten years
1: one, basically yeah. on. So that I mean that's that's pretty good for us. I'm real interested in
0: this. I, I so well, is ten, one big is it is it well, one big sixteen by twenty sheet or is it
1: know, several little tiles? I think all the different companies have their own sizes. I think uh, pretty standard uh four by four is ours so they're four by four tiles and like yeah. if you ever seen like the interlocking foam gym flooring yes like, the same concept but way tighter you have to use them like a rubber mallet to get it hammer in. it in yeah. and then it's there's like two spots in the whole surface where you can actually make out where the grooves are everywhere else you can't even tell the scenes are there that's
0: really interesting
2: so t- tell aaron greg where he where he might be able to see uh a uh <laughs> your uh some pictures and video of your yeah. basement
1: yeah, Aaron, you want to sign up for a, a, a one-on-one lesson, you just go right on over to grhockey27.com and you can sign up and we'll, we'll get you on there. We'll, we'll teach you how to skate, how to stick handle, how to shoot, all the good stuff. But, and how you know, to sell how to sally too, yeah. right? Exactly. No, it's been great. I've been doing very uh, just small group sessions in my basement, um, two to four kids, and it's been a lot of fun. I, uh, the individual teaching and to have the ice, now like where i can actually help them with their skating and you know like i said it's all about fundamentals It's i'm not going to sit here and try to sell you on the new terminology on how to say something but it's passing and shooting and skating and being able to work with them closely and teach them the proper form at a young age i think it's very very important
0: well, as we wrap things up here uh let's look ahead to the next season um do you have any inkling do you have any feeling do you think one do you think it's going to happen and, and i guess i think we all do and we don't really have an idea of how it's going to look but um what are your hopes i guess what uh, and and how do you keep a team prepared because you're going to have quite a few guys we anticipate back in milwaukee once this thing does get going again
1: yes yeah, the uncertainty is so hard and that and i You know, it's a good question because I've tried to think about it. If I was still playing, what I would be doing right now. And the the answer is I have no idea. Like it's, I I feel for our players. Um, Carl's done a good job. He has the team divided up between the three of us, me, Carl and Scott Ford. And we're just kind of keeping in contact with our group. Just kind of keeping their minds right. Because right about now is when we'd be reporting to Nashville and getting ready to go for the season. So we got to keep guys, make sure they're staying engaged. I, I know for myself personally, it's pretty easy to get my life now is like going to my kids' sports and doing everything. And so now myself too, now that they're back at school, I'm I'm getting refocused back on hockey and, and starting to look at stuff and where we want our team to be when we do start up. Is it going to start up? I sure hope so. I, I mean, I know as much as you do on that, it's, it's all going to depend on, I think the NHL has done a great job, but they're in a bubble. So I think there's a lot of factors that come in when you look at the American Hockey League. We, we, we don't have that luxury of doing that. We have to travel and we have to stay in hotels and I, I don't know how that looks moving forward. So I guess it's a, it's a wait and see.
0: Yeah. When you, when you deal with your groups, is it all forwards? Do you have some defensemen? How has it been split up?
1: No, it's all, all over. Carl, Carl believes strongly in that, you know, me and Scott need to work with it's a team. opposite exactly. of what we uh, opposite of what we know it, him being a defenseman and me being a forward in our playing playing days uh he he wants us working with the opposite as well so we so we can grow you know as a coach that way
2: sure uh, out of the group who is your least favorite to talk to no
1: yeah
0: well we won't make him answer that because he's going to say us yeah. too right, yeah. right
1: right never doing this again um, Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure to see your face and have a conversation with you again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to take that, that it was not sarcastic, uh, even though it might have been. Uh, I will take that as nothing but uh, kind.
0: Yeah. Good to see you, Greg. Good to see you. I'm I'm glad the family as well. And uh, we both are obviously, and um, can't wait to, can't wait to do this in person.
1: Absolutely. It's great talking with you guys again. I feel like we can continue on for hours it's always good stuff
2: we could we could literally do this for hours yeah Uh, but
0: But i don't know how ratings happen ratings go rated
2: ratings wouldn't be great yeah
0: you know it'll fade a little bit uh yeah good to see you thanks a lot um we uh real quick you, you mentioned your your hockey uh your your gr hockey 27 um explain that real quick just just so people know uh if they I'm assuming you're that's what you're doing right now, right, or I shouldn't say right now, but um but that's that's also a a business for you
1: quickly, yeah, so for me, it's even when I was in college, I would work hockey schools it's, I, I always enjoy working with the youth hockey players and helping them grow and now having three of my own and living with us, all three of our kids play hockey I just uh I really feel the need to to get out there and help kids grow the game, grow the game of hockey because I love it because it was the future of the game and offer, you know, what I feel is good coaching and, and try to keep it at a reasonable price because I understand hockey is such a crazy driven money sport. So we do uh, camps in the summer. Those are done for this year. They went really well, had a lot of fun doing them. And then, uh, like Charlie had mentioned, we we do have synthetic ice now in my basement. So, the last month or so, I've been doing uh, mostly about four kids, two or four, two to four kids is probably like the the ideal uh, kids. One on one is uh, I don't always recommend it because, like I said, I like to do things competitively because I mm-hmm. think it keeps kids engaged more to have another kid there. And if he does it better, then so and so wants to do it better. You obviously you know where I'm going with that, but so we do one-hour lessons in, in my basement and, and it's been working really well and the feedback i've gotten is that kids love it and they have a great time and they think it's super cool to come over and put their skates on in the basement and and play hockey so um it's something it's a it's a passion of mine hockey's a passion and it's just another you know chapter or page of, of what i like to do i, I really enjoy coaching elite athletes at, at our level but at the same time i, I do like coaching the future of, of the game so It's something that I'm trying to grow as a business and, you know, it's doing okay. But uh, like I said, I I enjoy it and it's a lot of fun.
2: And we'll throw a link to, we'll throw a link to uh, GR, GR hockey 27 uh, in the uh, description here on the uh, podcast as well. Very
1: good. Thanks Charlie. How much are you going to charge me for that? A lot. And the bill, the bill will be on your desk.
0: You put in, you've put in well over an hour on this thing, and I'm sure as a host you didn't get many tips at Applebee's to put away. Yeah. So we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, uh, we'll let it go. Oh, if you are you're going to let me live that story. down
1: now, are you? <laughs> no. 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 Really me, now that you know that, that oh. you worked at Applebee's. You
0: know you what? what? I went from an option quarterback to a defensive lineman working two years at Old Country Buffet when I was 16. <laughs> 16 <you know? laughs> so
1: at 20 years old. The free lunch that I got when I got off my shift every day was just like awesome. Was, was yes. it the
2: smothered chicken? Did you get the smothered yeah. chicken?
1: Usually, at at that point, it was either the bacon cheeseburger or the the uh, chicken Caesar salad. Yeah, that's before I, before I learned that. to Be a hockey player, you might have to eat a little healthy. You <laughs> might, you might, you can't have bacon cheeseburgers every single day. <laughs> Not every day, no.
2: Like no. like in, like in you... the eighties when they would have cigarettes and beer in between yeah. in between periods. <laughs>
0: If, you, if, you, if, if your attitude about food is that, you're never going to be a broadcaster, Greg. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this.
1: No, you're a you back guy. Thank you.
0: That's uh, Admiral's Assistant Coach Greg Rollo. Thanks for listening. For Charlie Larson, I'm Aaron Sims. This has been the Milwaukee Admirals
1: Podcast.